1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
2: The new season of Design Matters with Debbie Millman starts in April. The episode you're about to listen to originally dropped in August of 2021.
3: And he basically said, I would like to buy you. And, you know, at the time I said, we're really not for sale he said, what if I could tell you, you could do what you love, and we could do all the things you don't love, and what if I tell you that you could spend quality time as a mother and with your children and do all the things that bring you joy.
2: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Milman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Bobby Brown talks about selling her cosmetics company to Estee Lauder.
3: I honestly thought I owned the company. I acted as if it was my company, even after I sold it.
0: Bobby Brown created her eponymous line in the early 90s and then sold it to the Estee Lauder Company in 1995. After 25 years heading the brand, Bobby has moved on. In the time she's written nine best selling books, she's consulted with TV shows, she's recently become a health coach, she's bought and refurbished a hotel, and yes, she recently started another company and a new beauty brand. She joins me today to talk about the evolution of her remarkable, groundbreaking career and her
3: new line of cosmetics. Bobby Brown, welcome to Design Matters. Oh, thank you so much, and it's a pleasure talking to you. And you have such a calming voice. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so just saying that. <laughs> thank so you. I'm, I'm happy to talk to you,
0: Bobby. Is it true that your ringtone is "I can't get no satisfaction"?
3: Um, it's one of the five, and yes, it. That, <laughs> that is one of them. <laughs> Wait a minute. So who is I can't get no satisfaction appointed to? And what are the other four? Oh no, I usually well, I, I have right now I actually have um, happy. By Pharrell and I think I've got I definitely have some biggie because I love rap so it's just when I get bored I change it I'm also this weird girl that changes my covers on my iPhone because I get bored so you know maybe because I didn't have daughters so I couldn't buy these you know different outfits I change my iPhone.
0: Now, I know you've worked with the Rolling Stones before. Did they ever hear your phone go off?
3: I don't think they did. I, I've done their makeup for album covers, and I had this out-of-body experience a bunch of years later where I was doing the fashion show of the then uh, Mick Jagger's girlfriend, Lorenz Scott, and was invited over to their home for dinner. And uh, that was an out-of-body experience, having, spending the evening at Mick's house with like six people. That was pretty yeah. cool.
0: And what a loss for the world to lose Lauren.
3: She was unbelievable. A, a dear friend and the tallest woman I've ever been with, and I am five foot tall. So we, oh, did we, you get a good picture? I oh, know I know did. Like we always said the... we were the, together we were the perfect ten. She was the one, and I was the zero. I was, <laughs> you know, we were the perfect ten.
0: <laughs> Bobby, you grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. You said that your mother, your Aunt Alice and the actress Ali McGraw were your role models. Why Ali McGraw?
3: Well, different role models for different things. I mean, my mother is responsible for me falling in love with makeup and following it as a career. She always encouraged me. My aunt Alice is the woman that has taught me the most about life, about how to be grounded, about what's important and how not to sweat the small stuff. And Ally McGraw, you know, when I saw Love Story, I was in middle school and at a time in my life where I didn't feel enough, pretty enough, you know, cute enough. And I saw Ally McGraw with her natural hair and hardly any makeup. And it's the first time I said, you know what, I could be pretty too. So that there are different reasons.
0: You've written about how your mother was an extraordinarily glamorous woman and you loved watching her apply white eyeshadow and black liner in her blue gilded bathroom. Uh-huh. What enthralled you so much about makeup at that time in your life?
3: You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I was not like a student, so I reading and and studying were not my uh, passion in life, so I just always loved not glamour. I didn't love glamour, but I just loved uh, ways to better yourself, whether it's through diet, even back then, or certainly with makeup. But I used to watch my mom and it was the 70s. And so my mother was 20 when I was born. So when I, she was always 20 years older than me. So when I was 10, she was 30 and still, you know, incredibly glamorous. And she pretty much channeled anyone from Cher to Jackie Kennedy. And she just always had this amazing beauty and perfection about her and I could never compete with that. So I never tried. I always felt so silly when I would do my makeup like she did. So I did it my way. You know, Bobby, I don't want to be pandering. I, I have
0: been accused at the, certainly in the early years of this podcast for fawning over my guests, <laughs> but I do have to say, you're really beautiful. I don't know where you come, you know, this like zero and that you thought you could be pretty. Like, you are really a beautiful woman. I don't know where that's coming from.
3: Well, thank you. But, you know, I'm realistic, and I kind of have a sense of humor about it. And, you know, coming from the suburbs of Chicago, I wasn't like my friends that were the cheerleaders. Mm -hmm. I wasn't like my friends that were the student council. I I was in the popular group, but I couldn't really figure out where I belonged. I was kind of, and I still am, you know, a chameleon. I would go with one group and I'd fit in, then I'd go with another group. And, you know, I've always been a sponge, which has served me well in my adult life. But, you know, when you're growing up, you get insecure. And, you know, I was the shortest one. I've always had to watch every morsel in my mouth, you know, or I could definitely be, you know, a very heavy girl at five foot tall. So we are contemporaries.
0: We, we grew up at exactly the same time. Our mothers are also 20 years older than both of us. So I have to ask, um, was there ever a time when you wore green eyeshadow?
3: I never wore green eyeshadow, but I did wear lavender and a little bit of pale blue because I remember on the bus, I would bring this Yardley palette I had and just put a very small amount close to my lashes. I guess my mother didn't want me to wear makeup at school. So I did it on the bus. I also was not
0: allowed to wear makeup, but I was so desperate. I also brought makeup and nail polish Mm. to school and I put on the nail polish in the morning and took it off before I went home but I wore red so it was really Uh. hard to get it out of the cuticles Uh. how did you wear your hair back in the 70s
3: oh I have been wearing my hair the exact same way parted in the middle dark long and whether that's Allie McGraw I mean I was gonna say Allie McGraw you know I still do that you know people always say where do you part your hair I'm like in the middle and uh, my hair, which looks dark now, is actually 100% white. I always thought when I maybe turned 60, now that I'm 64, I'm like 70. I'm like, no, maybe at 80 I'll let it go. But right now, right now I like coloring it. So as soon as you were old enough,
0: you got your introduction to formal training at your local small cosmetic
3: store. Well, no, not formal training. I got a, it was almost like a a job interview at the local makeup store. It was a friend of my mother's. I didn't actually work there because my experience at this store was I went in and she said, I'm going to teach you everything I know. I'm going to show you how to do makeup. And she started with taking everything off. And she said, well, your skin is really yellow. So let me make it pink. And by the way, your nose is too big. So I'm going to show you how to contour it. And your lips are too small. Let me show you how you could make them bigger. And your eyes are very beady or small. Let me make those bigger. And by the time I was done, she made me feel like I was the ugliest person. And I looked in the mirror. And I just said, Oh, my God, I look terrible. I went home, I didn't cry. I washed my face. And I said, I look much better. And I never wanted to work there. But I did see this woman, her name was Elaine, uh, about uh, 20 years ago. And she said, I am responsible for your success. And I said, yes, you are part of it. That is true. <laughs> but not for the reason you yeah, think. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> At that point in
0: your life, what did you think you wanted to do professionally?
3: You know, I didn't know. I mean, I was, I was still in high school. So I was more, you know, concerned with hanging with my friends and even when it was time to go to college, you know, I, I didn't go look at colleges. I followed a boyfriend to University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. I graduated high school early, not because I, you know, had great grades, but because I just did my homework to be done so I could do something else. So I went there for six months and then I went to University of Arizona. I was there for a year and I came home and said, Mom, I, 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 school is so boring. I want to drop out. And she said, you need to, you can't drop out. And she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I have no idea. She said, pretend today's your birthday and you could do anything you want. What would you want to do? I could have said, go to Paris. I could have said, go clothes shopping. I said, I want to go to Marshall Fields, the department store, and play with makeup. And she said, why don't you be a makeup artist? I said, I don't want to go to beauty school. She said, I'm sure there's a college somewhere. And I found Emerson College in Boston and that changed my life. A friend of your father's first told
0: you about Emerson College, and you were ultimately able to create your own major in theatrical makeup. But you've said that the reason that you went, the real reason you went to Emerson was because of the Magic Pan Cafe. Yes,
3: yes. yes. (laughs) Tell us that story. (laughs) So as a kid growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, we didn't have a lot of outdoor restaurants back then. I flew up to Boston, It was very magical. Boston looks like Europe. And, you know, there was this magic pan cafe with umbrellas outside. And I literally flew up two days before Emerson started. And I walked into the office and basically anything I said I wanted to do, they said, you could do it here. Sure. I said, okay. And I created my own major. And I realized that was the start of me learning how to be an entrepreneur.
0: Hmm. You said that when you found Emerson you found yourself. In yes. what way?
3: Because it was the first time I was with people that were just like me. Like I always felt I wasn't as smart as, you know, the other my other friends. I wasn't as smart as the other kids in some of my classes. And I wasn't interested in traditional education, which I didn't realize at the time is because I am a visual creative person. But when I went to Emerson, There was a bunch of quote unquote goofballs like myself that were creative and passionate and fiery and, you know, not afraid to try things and just jumped into all these new experiences like filmmaking and public speaking and, you know, whatever else there was. And I was studying makeup and I did makeup for all the different things at school. And, you know, it was just a really, really amazing experience for me.
0: When did you go from more theatrical makeup to
3: fashion makeup? Well, in college, my degree was in theatrical makeup because it wasn't a fashion school. I didn't even think of it back then because I really only assumed that being a makeup artist meant you worked in TV and movies. I didn't understand that there was other things. So I studied theatrical makeup. I did one film. Right after I graduated, it was torture for me. It was so boring being a makeup artist sitting on the set and just waiting for your turn to fix and touch up and continuity. And I learned when I picked up a magazine once and read a story about a freelance makeup artist who was doing makeup for Fashion Week and ads, and she just sounded like this amazing career. And so I wrote to her and said, can I come and assist you for free? She never wrote me back. But when I came to New York, I called her. She never called me back. On her answering machine, it said, call her agent, which I did, and he said, come see me. And he didn't represent me, but at least he told me the steps I needed to take to become a, a makeup artist in the fashion world. So I did. You said that at this point in your life, one of the
0: best things you had going for you was that you were naive. And in retrospect, you felt that you couldn't believe that you had the guts to show your amateur portfolio of makeup work from college in which half of the models were yourself. Right. And well, th- yeah. I- I'm just wondering, was it, do you really think it was naivety? I think, you know, it's also
3: like kind of courageous. Well, I think you could look at it both ways. But no, I don't. I mean, yes, I've always been courageous, not afraid that someone's going to say something, but I'm naive thinking that they might not like this or naive that, oh, you don't just do this. You know, I'm not afraid to ask anyone any question. I never have been. I've never thought of, oh, what could happen? So it is being naive, and it's kind of a good quality. I didn't, you know, realize it. And yes, it's courageous because you're. I'm not afraid of them saying no. I think I'm someone that sees opportunity when other people see roadblocks
1: what are you afraid of
3: um you know i'm afraid of you know safety health and wellness for the people i love you know i'm someone that i'm I'm very nurturing and i happen to have this amazing career but i've literally put most of my time and energy and emotions into my family Right now I am literally one, one week away from my first kid's wedding. I honestly, I've been like just sitting there crying, listening to, you know, mother, mother, son songs, you know, so I'm trying not to focus on that, but I'm not afraid of failure. Because, you know, to me, there is no such a thing when you, when something doesn't work out, it's an opportunity or a message to do something else.
0: When you first got to New York, in an effort to get work at that time, you placed an ad in The Village Voice offering makeup lessons, and you got one answer, one response. Um, Tell us a little bit about who it was and, and what he wanted you to do.
3: First of all, I am so incredibly impressed in how much homework you have done. I hope you are also a a writer on the side and could write my memoir, because it would be (laughs) be awesome, save me a a lot of time and energy. But yes, I thought, well, okay, I needed cash. I had no money, and my father, as a graduation gift, bought me my rent for one year. So I put an ad in the Village Voice. I got one call. I think I charged $150. It was from a man who said he was an actor and he, had a, he was in a play. And it was actually a man, if I had to guess, because he didn't tell me that he was going through something personal and he was a cross-dresser or something because he brought an entire Louis Vuitton bag full of women's clothes and he just wanted me to teach him how to put makeup on. And he tried on all the clothes and it was just me and him in this space and I'll never forget it and I was like, okay, maybe this is not a good idea. And I'd never did it again.
0: <laughs> Over time, you got some work assisting on Saturday Night Live. Within a year, you got a good gig at Glamour Magazine. But wasn't that the job where the hairdresser told you that you would never make it in New York because you didn't have
3: a style? And he wasn't the only one that ever told me that. I've had stylists... And I had one that took me shopping in the East Village to buy me leather pants because she thought I needed a style. And I'll never forget when I put those leather pants on. I bought them and I put them on and I was like, oh, my God, I look like an idiot. So, Now, how do you handle that kind of feedback?
0: Did it give you pause? Did you think that perhaps she could be right?
3: Of course, I absolutely always listen to what people say and think about it. And, you know, it's taken me years to kind of let go of any kind of insecurity and feeling bad about these things that people say and realizing that, you know what, I do have a style. It might not be your style, but it's my style. Yeah, of course, at the time when anyone tells you any kind of criticism, you know, your portfolio, your work isn't up to speed, or you need to start contouring models' faces if you want to work. You need to do this. And I always had people telling me things. And I also was smart enough, maybe naive enough, to know this is their opinion. And other people have different opinions. But I always asked, because I do like feedback.
0: What do you think of the current high contour phase we seem to be going through, brought on by the Kardashians?
3: Well, I'm not a fan of it at all. I don't like it. I find that it, if anything, it's telling women what's wrong with their features they have. I'm someone that believes that natural beauty is the best kind. And, you know, I'm 64 years old. Do I wish I didn't have lines in my forehead? I don't really even wish that because it's not possible. So why spend the energy doing that? I just don't focus on natural aging on myself, but I try to always look better, feel better, how I could be healthier because I just look better when I'm healthier.
0: There seems to be an almost acceptable trend now for a lot of plastic surgery. At one point, it was very secretive and people were sort of ashamed about it. Um, now it seems very out in the open and there does seem to be a very specific kind of look that people are going for, which to me feels really unnatural and really highly constructed. How do you feel about what's happening? I mean, it's a sort of leading question, given that I just told yeah. you my opinion yeah.
3: first. <laughs> well, you know, what I remember when it started coming out and be more popular about 20 years ago, where people were, yes, I just got some Botox, or yes, I just got some filler. And it was still whispered, but, you know, I tried Botox twice. And I both times, I had terrible, terrible reactions. And I just remember saying, okay, this makes me look weird. I don't like it. And, you know, I happen to be married to someone that doesn't like that look. So I just never went back there. And there's some people that do it. And it's you can't really tell and it's tasteful but there's a lot of people that do it and you could tell and you know i'm not a fan of it but i'm i'm honestly i'm not here to judge because there's so many different women out there and men by the way that like and want different things and i think that's okay i mean we're in you know a place and a time where We have to find more love in our hearts for people. We have to find more acceptance of people that are different. And, you know, I think that if I can do anything, I could at least encourage people to be the healthiest versions of themselves so they hopefully will feel better and not do things they don't need to do.
0: One of your first big breakthroughs took seven years. It was your first American Vogue cover. You worked with Patrick de and he was photographing Naomi Campbell for her first Vogue cover in 1989. And you've written about how this shoot was the first time anyone had filled Naomi's lips in with a dark color. Prior to that, her signature look was a dark outline around her lips with the inside being a lighter lip cover. And I went and looked at photos and it had that very 50s kind of fake look. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And you thought making her entire lip darker looked better, which it absolutely did. How did that cover change your career?
3: Well, first of all, the shoot was at like sunrise in the middle of the summer. So it was in the seven o'clocks. So we started the makeup very, very early and we touched it up on the beach and there were no mirrors. It was an old Calvin Klein lipstick where I blotted it on her lip. And I was like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. And Patrick, his famous, the Janille, it's Janille. I'm like, all right, we shot it. And you never know if it's a cover. It's a cover try. And it did become a cover, and um, I heard through the grapevine that Naomi was very upset at the time, but I think she stopped doing it after that. So She did. I looked. Yeah. I couldn't find yeah. anything post that cover. Yeah. And, and now her
0: lips look exactly the right, way like they that. did on your cover from 1989.
3: Right. So, you know, I stuck to my gut. I, I was really bad, and I still am, at doing makeup that I don't find natural. And, you know, I don't really get hired as much to do those kind of jobs anymore. At that point, as a makeup
0: artist with essentially access to everything in the market, I understand that you found most products too artificial looking, making it really challenging to create a, a more natural look. And at the time, the most popular look was very, very white skin with bright red lips and painted, sculpted faces. And you wouldn't do that. Kind of makeup. And in fact, I've read that you've stated that you couldn't do that kind of makeup. Yep. How come?
3: Well, I couldn't because I didn't think it looked good. So no matter what I did, I couldn't do it. And I remember the first time I tried, I got hired to do a cover of British Cosmo with Jerry Hall. And she was lovely. And she was a very, very big model at the time. I had never met her before. And when I finished her makeup, I handed her a mirror, because I always handed people mirrors to, to say, how, how do you like it? And she looked at it. She said, oh, it's very pretty. She said, do you mind if I do a couple things? I said, not at all. She said, could you hand me that brush and that palette? I said, sure. She sat there and redid her entire face, contouring, overlining, whatever the look of the time was. And number one, I learned a lot about certain things that I might not have noticed. And number two, she was happy, so it became a cover. I still you know, have it somewhere, and um, I couldn't do it myself. She did it, and you know that happened a couple other times, but then I'd work with other women that allowed me to do my thing that didn't even look in the mirror. The first time I did Diane Sawyer, I did her makeup. I showed her a mirror. She said, oh, I'm sure it's fine. And I was like, wow. Things like that are, are memorable to me. You said you
0: learned a lot from the experience with Jerry Hall. What what did you learn?
3: Well, I learned, number one, that it's really important for the person you're making up for a shoot to feel that they're at their absolute best because that's going to make the best picture. I also learned things like she did her brows all the way to the edges and used the brush to raise the brow for the arch. So I I took away makeup techniques that I might not have known, but then I have kind of made them my my own. And that has happened dozens and dozens and dozens of times. I always hand someone the mirror and see if they're happy. And it's not always a perfect experience, but I think a partnership when it comes to makeup is is the way to go.
0: Most lipsticks on the market at that time looked artificial, smelled bad, really artificial, and had a texture that was either greasy or dry. And to create lipsticks that were more flattering, you mixed commonly used colors that were very popular at the time, ultra bright fuchsia, oh my God, the 80s, acid oranges, frosted pinks with a little matte beige color to create prettier, more wearable shades that looked great on pretty much anyone. And- Can you share how you created your bespoke nude shade Mm. at the time?
3: Well, when I was a makeup artist without a line, I figured out the beige tones down bad colors and, you know, this blackberry tone into a lipstick makes it more evening. Like I learned all these different tricks. So when I sat down and thought about this bespoke range I was going to create, it started with one color that looked like my lips. And I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. It was kind of like a brownie, beigey, blue-toned. It's hard to even describe. And I said, oh, my God, everyone's going to love this. And then I realized everyone's not going to love it because this particular color is my lip color, but women have pale lips and dark lips and blue lips. So I needed to make lipstick of all the lipstick shades. And then I also said, well, okay, some people don't like their nude lipstick colors. And by the way, we all have different nude lipsticks. And some people like red, pink, and orange. So I made those colors too. So I curated 10 colors. And I thought, all right, with these 10 colors, anyone can find their shade. Or if you bought all 10, you can literally create any color in the world and never have to buy another lipstick. I read that you thought about
0: different women you knew at the time and tried to imagine their perfect shade. Carolyn Bissett Kennedy was the inspiration for A Great Red. Ricky Lauren inspired Pale Pink. Adrienne Vitadini was the inspiration for Beige. Talisa Soto for Mm -hmm. Raisin. And Naomi Campbell was Blackberry. I saw some of the wonderful swashes that you first created and worked with the Kiehl's chemist to help
3: create. How long did it take you to perfect the color palette? Well, we started with brown, which was my color. And then, you know, back then we would just mail things back and forth to each other. It probably took me about six or nine months. You know, coincidentally, it was the exact same time where I was um, having my first baby. So I had the time, and I was not impatient, and I had no idea what was gonna happen. I really thought I was just gonna make these lipsticks to sell to models, maybe sell to my friends, you know, in the suburbs where I lived. And I had no idea what was gonna happen, honestly. And so I did it, and I'm like, wow, this is so cool. And I started then selling them out of my home, mailing them to people. That's how it began.
0: I read that you got a three-line description of the new brand, Bobby Brown Essentials, in Glamour Magazine, which included
3: your phone number. Right. Did that jumpstart your sales? Did people realize? Did that it did do anything? It did. So, you know, everything for me just kind of happens for a reason. I was having lunch with a friend who happened to be the beauty editor at the time. And Leslie Seymour, and she's, you know, we talked about our first baby and work, and she said, What are you doing? And I said, I'm working on this makeup line and I'm selling these out of my house. And she says, That's so interesting. Tell me about it. She said, Can I write about it? And I was like, Why would you want to write about it? Now I know it's called PR. And it did (laughs) jump, it did jumpstart people knowing about it. And we started selling them out of my house, and I think we did that for a year. Uh, maybe a year and a half. And then I one day was at a party in New York, and I thanked the person that invited me, who someone else brought me to the party. And I said to her, as I do, I talk to everybody. And I said, What do you do? And she said, I'm a cosmetics buyer at Bergdorf Goodman. I said, Oh, I have this line of lipsticks. And she said, I'll take them. And that kind of started the conversation.
0: Well, she said she would take them, and then she actually reneged. She did. Tell us that story, because that's one of my favorite Bobby Brown stories. Right.
3: Well, she said she would, you know, sounds amazing. She'll bring them in and get everyone's opinion. And she called me and said, everyone's really excited. We'll take them. And I said, that's so great. And... Then I think it must have been days later, I was at doing a shoot for Saks Fifth Avenue, their catalog. And I had all the colors because I was always busy doing something in between, you know, getting ready for the makeup. And one of the art directors came over and said, you know, what are you doing? That's so cool. And I said, oh, I'm launching this line of lipsticks at Bergdorf. And then later in the day, I called in to get my messages on my phone. I remember I had a beeper. And one of the messages was from the buyer that said, I am so sorry. I have bad news, but we can't take the lipsticks right now because we don't have any room. So I remember my heart sunk into my stomach and I was so bummed out. And the art directors came back over to show the other art directors and said, oh, my God, we'd love to take this. And I said, I don't even know why I thought of this. And this was after the Bergdorf call. I said, well, you can't have it because I'm launching at Bergdorf's. And then the Bergdorf person called back, asked me something. And I said, no worries. It's not a problem because Sachs wants it. And she said, I'll call <laughs> you back. And they took it. So, I love that story.
0: Yeah. I love that story.
3: And now they're in both places. <laughs> yes. They're, yes.
0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.
1: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Your first 10
0: lipsticks debuted in 1991 at Bergdorf Goodman. You were projecting to sell 100 in a month. You sold 100 within the first day. What do you attribute to the success so quickly after launch?
3: Well, I think I hit a nerve. And, you know, I, I know I'm doing it today in the new company too. But I think back then I hit a nerve because people really liked the feel of these lipsticks, they liked the colors and it was so different than what was on the market where most of the lipsticks on the market were the artificial, smelly, bright lipsticks. These were, they were comfortable on your lips and they were colors that worked not just to match your lips, but with your skin. So they were so easy and they just, you put them on you're like, oh my God, it looks good. And so it hit a nerve and it was very much word of mouth in the beginning. We didn't advertise. And there was no social media. There was not, nothing that we have today. It was really word of mouth. And also the fact that I was a PR, you know, editorial makeup artist. So magazines would write about it. And it just kind of started taking off. You've talked at
0: length about how you grew up in a time when beauty was epitomized by tall, all American models like Cheryl Teagues and Christy Brinkley. You've said that when you look at a woman, you actually don't see what's wrong with her. If they don't look that way, Mm -hmm. you see what's right with her. Has that always been the case for you?
3: Yes. And I've always appreciated interesting beauty. It was, you know, it was never the classic blonde, blue eye, you know, 80s model or 70s model. I loved when I started meeting women of different coloring you know, different things that they had, whether it was someone who's mixed. And I would always, you know, want to know, what are you? You know, what are you? And I just always appreciated. And back then, I mean, I can't even believe they called it ethnic beauty, which is anyone Mm. that wasn't like blonde and blue eyes, basically. So, you know, now it's like women with strong noses. I love freckles. I actually like lines in the face. I like character and I like, full lips. And I like just different things on different people. After four years, just four years,
0: you were able to sell your company to Estate Lauder. But even before that, you had two big offers you turned down. What made you decide to sell to Lauder?
3: Well, I think that when Leonard Lauder called, and I didn't think about selling to Estee Lauder, I thought about selling to Leonard Lauder. When Leonard called and asked to meet me, you know, I went with the partner to his house and I fell in love with him. And he basically said, you know, you're beating us in the stores. I would like to buy you. And you know, at the time I said we're really not on the market. We're not for sale. He said, "What if I could tell you you could do what you love and we could do all the things you don't love? And what if I tell you that you could spend quality time as a mother and with your children?" and do all the things that bring you joy. And I was like, hmm, interesting. And it was an offer that I couldn't refuse. So we, it was an amazing feeling. I never felt bad. I mean, it was an incredible experience. I was thrilled. My husband and I were able to you know, send all of our nieces and nephews to college and just, it was a, an amazing thing.
0: Didn't he also tell you that you reminded him of his mother? He did. And her entrepreneurship when she yes, started.
3: he did. But I, also, I used to laugh that, okay, we both had boys. You know, she had two, I had three. She would hang out with royalty and presidents. And I hung out with basketball players and, and rap stars. And,
0: yeah, but I think yours sounds a lot more fun. <laughs>
3: uh, I think so. Even though I really want to meet the queen. That's been my lifelong dream. Well, you did meet some royalty here
0: in the United States. In 2010, you were appointed by then-President Barack Obama to the Advisory Committee for Trade Policy and Negotiation. You were invited by First Lady Michelle Obama to participate in the White House's Leadership and Mentoring Program for Young Women. And I believe you almost did Michelle Obama's makeup for the 2009 inauguration. Is that correct?
3: Yes, I've done her makeup before, but I didn't get the job for the inauguration. She brought her Chicago team. I don't blame her, but I ended up doing Dr. Biden's makeup and becoming a very good friend of hers. I did her makeup for both inaugurations. And I don't remember if it was the first or second one. I think it was the first one where I somehow ended up in a motorcade amongst all of these guys that I had no idea who they were. And um, one guy turned to me, he said, who are you? I said, oh, I'm a makeup artist. He's like, what are you doing in my motorcade? And And I said, well, I did Dr. Biden's makeup. And I'm like, who are you? And he said, I am Leon Panetta, the Secretary of Defense. I'm like, nice to meet you. And he says, oh, can I take a picture for my wife? I do have pictures of me and him in the motorcade. Awesome. Have you been to the new Biden White House? I have not. I have not. It's been a very interesting time. You know, but with COVID and everything yeah. else, and, you know, I think they're still running and trying to catch up.
0: By 2010, that same year you were appointed by President Obama to be on the advisory committee, Bobby Brown Cosmetics was available in more than 980 doors, as they call it, 56 countries. By 2012, there were over 60 freestanding Bobby Brown Cosmetics stores worldwide and Bobby Brown Cosmetics were estimated to represent 10% of Estee Lauder company's total sales, which is quite a lot. You stayed at Lauder for 22 years. What kept you at Lauder for so long?
3: Well, I honestly thought I owned the company. I, I acted as if it was my company, even after I sold it. I had so much support in the beginning. I was pretty much allowed to do what I thought was right and what I wanted to do. And I interviewed every person that came in the door. I was able to build my team. I was able to do everything from name the products to create the products to promote the product. I did everything I was really good at. And it was, you know, for 20 years, it was pretty incredible. And I am so grateful to have had that experience. The last couple years, as I'm sure, you know, you could understand, was more challenging, and, um, you know, it was time to go. It's interesting. I spoke to
0: Jenna Lyons about leaving J. Crew, and she felt that she maybe left one or two years too late. Um, do you feel that yeah.
3: way? Yeah, you know, easy to say that now. Yeah. And by the way, you know, as someone that is, you know, Susie Sunshine and uh, just naive, I always think I could fix things. Yeah. I always think, all right, let me, I'm going to go in and I'm going to organize and I'm going to get everyone together and we're going to, and it just was challenging. And honestly, it was my aunt Alice, who is now 90, who, you know, I guess she was 85 and she called me one day, how's it going? And I was like, oh my God, aunt Alice, it's torture, this, this. She said, honey, it's time. It's time. She said, I've been listening to you complain <laughs> for years. It's time and it and it was time, and honestly, it was the biggest gift that could have ever happened to me because I would not I, I would not have been able to be who I am and do all the things if I was still there.
0: I read that after the shock of leaving war off, there was the silence. What yeah. was the transition like for you?
3: Well, it was a joint decision. I went down in the elevator. And it was like the most amazing thing happened. All of this stress left my body. I realized I wasn't responsible for all the problems anymore. It was, it was an interesting couple days. So I had a couple days where I was, I don't know if I was shocked, sad, mad. I don't know what it was. I drank tequila with my friends who live next door to me for two days. And then I started reaching out and calling a few friends. And the first, you know, one of the first people I called was Mickey Drexler, who was the most incredible mentor to me. And then I called my friend Richard Baker, who at the time owned Lord and Taylor and Saks. And he said, I'm so glad. He said, I want you to to make a Just Bobby store in the middle of Lord and Taylor. And I said, okay. And my husband said, you know, I want you to help me with a hotel. So I had two quiet days. (laughs) (laughs) but 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 it was my choice you don't like
0: being bored (laughs) no I get bored
3: very easily and I just I like to use my imagination and my mind and my friends and my network I like I like being in the middle of it
0: you had a four-year non-compete in the cosmetics industry which meant that you couldn't
3: I had a 25-year non-compete when we sold the company I signed a 25-year non-compete when I left the when I left Bobby Brown Cosmetics. I had four and a half years left. Wow! Wow! Four, so you made a necklace with the date, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, you're still no, wearing it. I'm still wearing it. It's not on today, but yes, I made a. I bought an ampersand, and on the back I wrote 10.20. I didn't know what I was going to do, but it was signaled my freedom.
0: How did you manage not knowing what your future looked like for the first time in your career?
3: Well, the positive things are I got to do things like see people for lunch for no reason. I got to like ride the train instead of being in a car service because I was too cheap to pay my driver, and walk into stores and kind of see what was out there. I kind of felt like George Bush when he left the White House and said, "Oh, you could just go shopping and you know put your coat in." So I I, I kind of liked all of that, and I just started thinking about possibilities and I put together a mini team and my mini team was, you know, to help me. I had a book to promote beauty from the inside out and to kind of, and help me with the George hotel, help me with just Bobby at Lord and Taylor and things just started getting interesting. You know, I, I ended up getting an offer to create a wellness brand. Didn't you become a certified health coach to do that? I too? did. I went back to school and I got my degree as a health coach from Institute of Integrative Nutrition. It was all done digitally and so much fun. And I just started talking to people and kind of trying different things. And, and especially on the hotel, like putting together my favorite brands and products and reaching out to them and... So when you stay at the hotel, you'll be sleeping on a Casper mattress, you will be having your Nespresso in the morning, and you will have Dyson hair dryer, and onward and onward. So you're once again building an empire.
0: You've launched Evolution 18. It's a lifestyle-inspired wellness line. You've started a website named justbobby.com. And drumroll, late last year, you launched your second makeup line in 30 years, your brand-new beauty brand, Jones Road. Is it true you got the name from the Waze app?
3: Yes, because when you're (laughs) sitting there deciding what to name this company, and I can't use my name, which is totally fine, did that. We couldn't agree on names. We asked, you know writers that we know cop we hired copywriters I even had Gloria Steinem working on names because I did a job <laughs> with her she goes oh I'll come up with a name so well, what did she recommend what you know you what recommend? if I could only find that list because she wrote it on on a piece oh, of paper in her handwriting. Yeah, yeah I know right so um, but then one day you know my my husband who was my biggest supporter in all of this said to me you got to come up with a name I said I know but and we this one's not available and he said we can't even think of launching until and, I, and we're starting to run out of time. So we were driving to the Hamptons and my husband likes to look at Google Maps and Ways because God forbid we're in traffic when there's a back road. And I put my head down and I looked at I said, Jones Road Beauty. And he said, what? And I said, doesn't that sound great? He said, it actually sounds awesome. And I called the team. I said, put me on speakerphone. They said, love it. And it became Jones Road Beauty. And for me, it, it was like, okay, Jones Road reminds me of a bespoke brand in the UK. And I'm a total Anglophile. It also was like, okay, well, I can't use brown. I'll use Jones. So, I like it because I, I actually
0: thought it was like I have a Jones for something. Uh huh. Exactly. So, and, then, yeah, and that was so the it was last a, one. Yep. Yeah. Would,
3: and everyone has a Jones for beauty. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So,
0: tell us about the brand and your various signature products.
3: Well, first some of all, some of which I'm
0: wearing. <laughs>
3: aw, well, first of all, um, you know, working on it, it is a clean brand, which just means it's. A brand of now because there's 2700 banned ingredients that you cannot have if you want to be a clean brand you said 2700 2700 <laughs> and that's the truth Jeez. so um you know i wanted to create the best products i wanted to to make this different kind of makeup because what happened also while i was still at the brand when you're part of a big brand and a big corporation you have many people to please and you have to come up with these products for different parts of the country and i had to approve at the end of my stay products that i just didn't like and you know i was pressured into it you know where i never would have had to do that earlier and i just don't like makeup that is so heavy and strong you know things were changing while i was still at the brand the digital brands the direct-to-consumer brands. But my personal makeup style on myself and on the people I was making up was changing also less makeup, more fresh, more skin, healthier. And I just wanted to have makeup that you could put on that instantly made you look like that. I was always frustrated with some of my artists that couldn't understand what I wanted because it made everybody look like they had a makeup face. I don't like a makeup face. So working with chemists and a couple product development people, I created these products that I was like, oh, my God, these are amazing. Amazing. Where I, you know, somehow named things like we named the pencil the best brown pencil. We named an eyeshadow the best color in the world. You know, I just I was so like enamored and excited and the miracle balm which is our hero product it was a happy mistake creating it and it literally instantly makes everybody look better. Why was it a, why was it an accident? Because I asked the chemist to create something that I wanted to make and it came back completely not what I wanted. And instead of like, you know, saying ah I just tried it, I stuck my hand in it and I put it on, I'm like, oh my God. So I wanted something that was um, more like a foundation. So it would have been more skin color-ish, but it ended up to be this miracle balm that you put on your face that's a hybrid skincare tinted makeup that you don't really even need a foundation when you put it on or just need it on parts. And if you did wear foundation, it made your foundation look so much better. And that was the first product that we said we could launch a company with just this product.
0: Is it true that the Miracle Bomb has a wait list of 20,000 people?
3: It did. It did because we didn't know how popular it was going to be. So, you know, we launched on the day my non-compete was up one week prior to the presidential election in the middle of a pandemic where I did the Today Show on my Zoom, you know, with basically a blazer on top and shorts on the bottom. Then I did a Wall Street Journal. And then I did Elvis Duran, you know, so I hit three different medias from my office. And that's how I launched it.
0: Incredible.
3: I didn't know and realize, number one, how interested people were that I was back and how much they'd love the products. So we thought we'd have enough for six months, and we sold out of two of the colors in three weeks. So there was a huge wait list, and then the coolest thing happened. Someone called me and said, Oh, my God, we just found 2,500 Dusty Rose Miracle Balms in the the warehouse. But we have no boxes. I'm going to order boxes. I said, You're not going to order boxes. I'm not waiting a month go to the store, get me white sandwich bags, get some neon tape and bring it to me. And we printed the ingredients on a card, put it in the bag and taped the bag with one little neon stripe. And we sold 2,500 that day, just like that.
0: So tell us the origin story of the bag that you created that kind of looks like a lunch bag, that you stored Jones Road in? Because when I got my products, it came in a little bag with a little sort of white snap button, which was really, really charming. Where did that come
3: from? Well, you know, we did not want to put anything in plastic. We did not want to use, you know, those little packing things that are environmentally bad. And we wanted to keep everything, you know, indie, low cost, simple. And we just found a company that had this fabric I love, like you're a brander I love creating the logo I love creating the feel I love how the logo looks on you know the packaging I love and I believe that everything sends a message so the bag it goes in the box it goes in the note every little thing matters the paper clip matters so of course I worried it wrinkled a little bit but you know what It's supposed to wrinkle a little bit. It's like linen. It It is. It
0: looks better that way.
3: Yeah, exactly. So we have since launched almost every month a new product category. Who did the identity for you? Me. Oh, good. Honestly, well, not me because I don't even, I don't know graphic design. We had hired a few different people and brought, you know, some people in. And I ended up finding a graphic designer who ended up going to high school with my youngest child. She was one year out of school and she joined freelance and everything she did I fell in love with so I have this kid who Aaron who does everything for me and we work really closely together and you know for me I like Bobby what do you like I like that I love that oh my god I love that and Aaron why don't you try to do this this way because you know I have this vision but I don't have the skills to actually bring my vision to life. So Aaron, Aaron has been a big, big supporter and big help.
0: Bobby, I have one last question for you, but then I have three sort of rapid fire beauty questions I want to ask you. Sure. Um, oh, wait, I actually have two last questions. I read that you wanted to have a hashtag for the brand called how not to look like shit.
3: Well, we actually have a hashtag because I might be the only one using it. Hashtag how not to look like shit. Because I, I also it. realized that's truly why people wear makeup. Right. I don't think people that want to look alluring and sexy are necessarily going to be a fan of Jones Road, but I'm going to attract the women that just want to look better with makeup. So yes, hashtag how not to look like shit. How can people buy the new line? Where can they find you? We are only direct to consumer. We have jonesroadbeauty.com. You can also buy off the Instagram. We are available. I don't know how they got it, but at the George Hotel in Montclair, we have a little pop up. That, you know, has some of the products. That's my hotel. That's how they got it. And we're opening a freestanding store in Montclair in September-ish slash October. That will be our first uh, freestanding store. We are not in any retail. We'll be doing our first pop-up at Goop in Sag Harbor this summer and working on our second one. So we're, we're, we're not doing traditional sales, which I'm pretty psyched about at the moment. Yeah, that's
1: great
0: really great. Okay. Three quick beauty questions. You okay with that? I think everyone that listens to the podcast that loves makeup would be mad at me if I didn't. (laughs) So I I feel like I'm doing it for, for my listeners. All right. Number one, what's the best way to tell if a makeup shade is right for your skin?
3: Honestly, the only way is to look in the mirror. And if you like the way it looks, it's the right color. Okay. That's, that's the general question. But then there's rules like, foundation should blend into your skin to know it's the right color. Blush should be the color of your cheeks when you pinch them. Like some of those things are just little, you know, hacks to help you find the right color. When you're
0: putting on foundation, do you use your fingers or a sponge?
3: Or a brush. Any of that, any of that works. I don't even use foundation. I use our face pencils because you don't really need foundation everywhere. You just need to even out Redness, dark spots, and anything else that pops up on your face. What is
0: one makeup routine most women get wrong?
3: Definitely picking a foundation. I, 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 Honestly, I find that most foundations out in the world don't allow your face to look like skin. It looks like you've got a foundation on. I personally don't like it.
0: Last one. What's one makeup tip you wish every person who wears makeup knew?
3: concealer, something to lighten under your eyes, makes you look not tired. I think that's really important. And a lot of women skip that because they don't know how to look for the right one. And for me, my number one thing is blush. If I do nothing else, and I'm lucky because I wear glasses so I can get away with looking tired. But if I wear (laughs) blush, I look better. And by the way, whatever makeup you have, whether it's an eyeshadow or a blush, you could use it on more than one thing. You could make any of your products multi-purpose products. There's no rules.
0: Bobby Brown, thank you so much for making so many people feel more beautiful. Or not feel like shit. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
3: Oh, my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. You can find out more about Bobby at her website, Bobby.com, And you can learn a lot more about makeup from any one of her nine wonderful books. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
2: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.